Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right. What we're going to do today is build off, to some extent, the discussion we had a few weeks ago around momentum. So um, what we talked about then, and we'll kind of get into some of this too today, but we sort of talked about momentum, the way it can be used to build investment strategies, some of the pluses and minuses of momentum investing. And, and what we thought we'd do um, with this discussion is kind of bring it, I guess, one level down and talk about how value investors or different types of investors can use momentum to augment their investment strategies. And, um, you know, they're two very different styles of investing value and momentum, but because they're so different, and we'll talk about this, that, you know, when combined or when utilized in different ways, um, you know, it can sort of help smooth out the returns of an investment strategy over time. And so that's going to be sort of the goal of this discussion to talk about how value strategies and momentums can utilize momentum. Um, but first, let's just kind of add a, spend the first couple minutes here, just as a recap, let's define what momentum investing is and what goes into that. Well, first of all, you know, I'm obviously going to ramble on with some dry uh, factor-based analysis in this, but uh, just for, for give people something to look forward to, apparently Matt is going to use the musical catalog of The Great Limp Biscuit um, in, in this episode to help us understand momentum. So I, I'm really hoping I did it all for the nookie is coming on. But uh, I don't know how he possibly could uh, could get that in there. But uh, Matt, I'm looking forward to whatever you might have coming here later. I promise to take you in a direction that avoids as much Fred Durst as possible. <laughs> By the way, the listeners are liking these musical references. We are getting comments, and uh, the feedback has been good. So we got. Wasn't going. the the comment was that we embraced the cringe or something like that? Um, it was something like that, right? Yeah, it was. It, it might have been my singing effort, but whatever. <laughs> Well, it's good. At least, at least we're different than other people talking about factor investing on podcasts. Um, but anyway, back to your, uh, now that I've digressed off of that, back to your question. Um, so momentum is basically just buying things because it's gone up. And, you know, we're not going to go into tons of detail here because we did in our other episode. But one of the cool things about momentum is pretty much anyone can use it. Because if you think about it, if it's just buying things that have gone up, well, how many things out there are there that have, that are like publicly traded, that have prices that move up and down? I mean, there's tons and tons of things. There's asset classes, there's stocks, you know, there's all kinds of the bond and anything basically that, that's trading, you can use momentum. And so that that's kind of a very cool thing. And, and that's sort of what we're going to talk about today, because people who are value investors might say, well, I'm not going to use momentum. Why would I use momentum? And the key is there, there's various degrees to which you can use momentum. There's a very aggressive degree to which you can use momentum. And then there's ways you can use momentum around the edges. And if I'm a value investor, and even if I'm like a, a person who believes really strongly in value and doesn't, doesn't like momentum, there's still things I can do 
around the edges that'll probably make my portfolio better and more efficient by using momentum. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're going to cover today. Uh, and like we, I think, talked about last time, you know, the, the, the reason that momentum, I guess, you know, tends to work, it, it's kind of, I think, a little bit more stronger in the behavioral, I guess, camp with, you know, possible underreaction by investors to good news. So it takes time for investors to, you know, accept or acknowledge the news. And so there's sort of a, like a, a delay in terms of investors' reaction, which can, but ultimately, you know, investors come in and there can also be like a hurting effect. So there's like an under and overreaction, I guess, rationale for why momentum works. Momentum as the underreaction to good news, just like value is trying to capitalize on the overreaction to bad news. And that pervasive underreaction to good news is something that carries something higher is just it's such a powerful visual metaphor, I think, for understanding why this thing exists and why we see it everywhere. And to my point, it can happen before it can happen anywhere. Like there can be an underreaction to good news in commodities. You know, most people think about it with respect to stocks, but it can occur anywhere. And, and that's what's the cool thing about it is, you know, it, uh, that effect works, you know, across everything. And, and so it makes it very it makes it a really great tool for investors to use in their portfolios in many different ways. One of the challenges of momentum, though, is it can be susceptible to these like crashes. First of all, it work, it, you know, it's tough in transitionary periods when you have a certain asset class or certain groups of stocks that's underperforming and then that turns on a dime. Momentum takes time to get back in, but then you can also have sort of higher volatility or more risk of momentum crashing when sort of the trend sort of dies down. And, and that's why the all-in momentum approach is not great for a lot of people. Like, you know, we talked about in our other episode, a lot of people don't under, don't love momentum because they don't understand why it works. They don't understand, like they want to know something about the value of a business or its earnings growth or its valuation, its quality, something like that. They don't want to just say I'm buying something because it went up. And so that, that can make it hard for people who are like value investors to use. And so it, when you have those crashes, when you have those periods, it's not working. If that belief is not there, you're going to abandon it, which is why in a lot of cases, using momentum around the edges is a better approach. Because if I use momentum around the edges, I'm a lot less subject to those types of things. I'm using it like, and we'll talk about what those methods are to use it around the edges are in a little while. But if I'm using those, I'm not as susceptible to a massive issue with momentum that's going to cause me to make a behavioral error. I think in the, in the underreaction to good news, it's that underreaction, but it's not going to be just getting better forever. And um, I'm going I'm to beat you to Limp Bizkit first on this one because this is like, it's the break stuff thing for like whatever model you have. So if you want to go momentum, and this is why a lot of professional allocators don't like to use it as a standalone all-in strategy because eventually like, what's the, the, the trend is your friend until the bend at the end thing that the technical people like to say? It's this whole thing. Like sooner or later, Fred Durst shows up, he's going to break stuff. And that thing that's been working so well and so cool is just going to explode in volatility to the downside. And that's always in your future when you're a momentum investor. And by the way, we'll get into sort of, I guess, why value investors struggle with this. But that's that might even be true of all different factors, Matt. You know, oh, there's every that, every yeah. strategy. Fred Durst is coming for you eventually when stuff is going well. <laughs> there's that chart that we often reference by Larry Swedro, who we actually, we just had on the podcast, um, 
earlier this week um, talking about his personal investing strategy, but he has that factor chart that shows over one, three, five, 10, and 20 year periods, all, all the different percentage of time that a factor underperforms. That's not necessarily talking about crashes, but you know, whether it's value, momentum, you know, all those different factors, you know, over different periods of time, there's always chances of relative underperformance. What's interesting is that, and this was from, you know, one of his books, I think the factor investing book, but what is interesting with momentum is when you look at, when you look at it over both a 10 and 20 year period, the momentum factor has the least amount of percentage time that underperforms the market. So over 10 year periods, it only underperforms 3% of the time over 20 year periods. It doesn't ever underperform, whereas value actually underperforms 6% of the time. I know we're kind of getting into sort of some numbers and details that might be a little bit detailed here. Maybe we can throw that chart in if we want, but, um, you know, yeah, we'll just to dig that. Point, yeah. We'll have to dig that up. But, you know, that what you said is so, so important because that's the opposite of what most people would think. Like if you said, like, what's a more consistent strategy over those rolling five, 10 year period, most people would think it's value. It's not. Momentum is actually a more consistent strategy over those periods, which is, you know, people think momentum, risky, you know, stuff, high flying stuff, and it's not the case. So we'll put the chart up there because that, that sort of gets into what we're going to talk about a little bit, which is as a value investor, if momentum is a completely different return stream, you know, it works in different times and it's more consistent, I'm going to benefit from using that. Now, I, I might not like it. I might not believe in it as much, but like, I, I'm going to benefit from that. Like the combination of value and momentum is, is better than value on its own. I mean, it's, it's very, very hard to argue anything against that. So it is important as a value investor to sort of open your eyes to some of this data and say, this is a really strong factor. It has really strong evidence supporting it. It's more consistent than value. There's a lot of reasons you might want to use this. I think one of the reasons that, you know, value investors struggle with this is because what do value investors do? You know, they start with the financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheets, the cash flow, the quality of the company to some extent. You know, mo a lot of value investors are looking for cheap stocks based on some type of metric or maybe the intrinsic, you know, trying to buy stocks below their intrinsic value where momentum investors, you know, don't care if you're a pure momentum investor, you don't care about any of that. All you care about is what's going up and, or what's going down, what, what to get in and what to get out of based on momentum. So, you know, I, I think that that's where a lot of value investors just can't wrap and it's for, it's for good reason because there are completely different ways to select stocks or asset classes or to try to find, you know, where there's opportunity in the markets. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's an interesting point. You know, one of the strategies we run has this fundamental of momentum overlay on top of momentum. And I think so, to some degree for like a value investor, something like that might make a little more sense because if you have that belief in fundamentals, I mean, it's not valuation you're worried about there, but if you have that belief in fundamentals, like seeing the fundamentals have momentum as well and not just the price. And, you know, the pure momentum guys will argue you're not adding anything with that because it's sort of reflected in the price already. But still, as a belief, you know, we all we always talk about it, it all comes back to your belief as an investor and what you're doing. Like, I think if value investors do think about if, if they're taking a more integrated approach, which we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, adding that fundamental momentum with the price momentum may make a lot of sense because, again, it gives you a better chance to believe what's going on because you're seeing actual numbers on the companies. I think anytime you're mixing in these, like we're just using statistical tools. And that was one thing some prior, prior colleagues and people I used to read a lot of stuff from at, um, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, the, uh, like Nigel Tupper and Savita Subramanian that like earnings betas and earnings momentum 
and all sorts of things that fundamental investors we talk about and value investors might feel like, oh, it's you shouldn't just be looking at the price and ignoring all this stuff. But these are just statistical tools. And if we're telling you that human behavior means these things are pervasive and they exist everywhere you look for them, you can figure out which place you want to train this statistical tool on to help you in your process. And I think that's that's a constant of just learning the language of momentum that's really important. One of the ways that some of our strategies utilizes, and I don't think I'm jumping ahead here, but I'm just making this point because um, one of the ways that a, a sort of momentum can be used is um, you can create like a, like a screen. You could like create a value screen, let's say. And then, you know, as the last sort, so let's say you create a, a, a screen of low PE stocks and maybe there's some other metrics in there. And then you have a list of 150 names. Well, that's probably too big of a portfolio to buy, but you need some final last sort to get that list down to a more manageable set of names. You know, you could basically then rank on relative strength or intermediate term momentum, 12 minus one momentum to get maybe the top 30 names for the portfolio. And actually that's what many of the strategies or at least a few of the strategies on Validia that utilize momentum, they do this like last final rank of using momentum because it's the way that gets the list down to a more manageable list of names. But also it's those are the stocks that are likely in the list to put up the best, you know, intermediate term performance because momentum is such a strong indicator of that type of performance period. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And that, that's a problem we face all the time. Like we'll have a strategy we run and there'll be say 60 stocks that all have the same score from the strategy. And we only want a 30 stock portfolio. How do we get there? Like there, there's all kinds of different ways you can do that. And, you know, we've, we've looked at like, you know, using like a consensus score that we have from all of our models to do it. You know, you could use momentum as a great thing you could use there. You could use something about that model itself to try to do it. So there's, there's a million different ways you can do that. And, and one of the good ways, especially with a value strategy is momentum because they, they are complementary to each other. So, you know, you're going to avoid, if, you, if that last sort is momentum, you're going to avoid some of those companies that might have some significant problems that maybe you're missing by just looking at financial statements. That's a good point, Jack. And let's, let's continue to kind of build on. So there's that way you can use momentum. Um, and there's also a number of other ways that value investors might consider using momentum. And so I think, you know, let's start with the, you know, equal weight value in a multi-factor portfolio. Yeah, this is the one probably value investors would be most reluctant to do. It, it probably is the best one if you look at the data, but they're going to be most reluctant to do it. I think I called it like in my article about this, the full Monty. Uh, it's basically like the aggressive implementation of momentum. It's, it's like the recognition that value and momentum are equally good factors. So why don't I use them basically like half and half in my portfolio? And there's, there's two different ways you can do that. One is the sleeve method, one, which is where you basically have your value portfolio. You build a separate momentum portfolio. You put them together into your overall portfolio. So that, that's one way you can do it. The other way we call like the consensus method, which is you can say, I, I can find stocks that have both value and momentum simultaneously, and, and I can make, use that to build my portfolio. The issue to some degree with that is, you know, you're looking at, as you add, look for more and more momentum, a lot of the time you're going to get less and less value. Um, so if you're a pure value investor, you're looking at your, your whatever you're using, your PE ratio or whatever. As you add in that momentum, your PE ratio on your portfolio is probably getting higher you're probably like sweating and getting less comfortable with what's going on. But 
I think that is the best way. I mean, uh, for for someone who's building a factor portfolio, relying purely on value, and, and we've learned this in the past, you know, couple of decades, is may not be the greatest idea. So the best thing is you've got an you've got something whose excess return is uncorrelated. Put it in there. Use both of them equally. And, you know, build a portfolio that way. But I say that recognizing that many value investors aren't going to do that because their belief is in value and not in momentum. So let's think about the last two years with those different methods. Let's first talk about the sleeve method. So in 2022, at the beginning of the year, you would have probably, if you were using a momentum strategy, you probably would have been mostly allocated to large cap tech because that was what was working at the end of 2021. Um, and then you would have been, you know, I think the value type of stocks would have been, you know, energy, just the stuff that was cheap. Now in 2022, the momentum sleeve would have probably done poorly because all that growth stuff got hit really hard, but the value stock stuff would have held up. Um, so that's an example of w where that, that type of strategy would have, um, you know, how those sleeves would have done. Now turn that into this year. Um, it's kind of been the complete opposite up until like a month ago. Like your momentum sleeve would have been doing really well and the value sleeve would have been underperforming pretty, pretty significantly. I think if you take the consensus method and try to think about the types of stocks that would be in there, you probably, because you're sort of blending those two factors together, you, you know, you're not getting as pure factor exposure. So I, I would tend to guess it'd be, there'd be more like a, of, a, of a quality component, actually, I think maybe in that consensus method um, to some extent. And I don't know exactly. I think that would have been a middle of the road strategy for 2022. I think in 2023, actually quality stocks have done done pretty well. So I'm just trying to think of, you know, the last few years and and every market's different. And so and that's the one thing with momentum is you can have momentum in a lot of different types of stocks all throughout the market cycle, whereas kind of value generally tends to stay, you know, in certain sectors and areas of the market, kind of for the most part, not always, but but mostly. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, this gives it that idea that momentum's a chameleon. So if, if I take a momentum portfolio and I score it based on value, quality, low volatility, the other metrics, and I look at that over time, it's going to be all over the place. It's going to, sometimes it's going to be all in on one. Sometimes it's going to have some exposure to all of it. It's just going to be all over the place. And what you were talking about gets at that idea, because if you had a sleeve, you know, if you had 10 value stocks and 10 momentum stocks there at that period, you talked about, there was going to be a, a point where those were very, very different portfolios. There was also going to be a point where you basically had a 20 stock value portfolio because value was doing so well, that momentum had jumped all in on value. And so that's like something you have to understand with momentum because it could be very difficult because your portfolio looks so different at different times. And you just have to understand why you're doing it and not, and all of us have this tendency to try to judge the fundamentals of what's going on. And like, that can be a challenge because those you're seeing completely different stocks at completely different times in a momentum portfolio. And that, that's true of, like you said, I mean, the consensus method might, you know, dampen that a little bit, but it's true across all of it, no matter how you were doing it. Even if you're using the consensus method, if I was looking for stocks that simultaneously have value and momentum, that would have, there was a point where that would have been value stocks. And so I would have been getting really, really cheap stocks that have a lot of momentum for a period of time. And there was another period of time where my real, my high momentum stocks were not going to be cheap. Uh, and it just rotates all over the place. Do you guys ever have tweets decked up and then don't tweet them? 
I mean, I'm so bad at Twitter. I don't know how to have like, a, basically, I just, I just send out videos at this point and that's well, about I, it. <laughs> like, I, I probably like throughout the day, I probably like have like, I don't know, I'm not great on Twitter either, but I probably have three to five like tweet ideas. And yesterday I had one of them and I, I, I charted, I was like, cause I mean, this, this relates to this, by the way. So let me just shake it out. I was like, I was looking at the performance of the MAG-7 over last month versus um, like the Russell 2000. So small cap, uh, Russell 2000 value. And like, so I did this, I was charting them all and I had this tweet all decked up and then I'm just like, you know, I'm like, is this even, is anyone even interested in this? Because I mean, of, of course you can rewind the clock to the last three months or year to date. And obviously the MAG-7 have, has crushed, you know, the Russell 2000 value. But the point is, and over the last month, the Russell 2000, what I was going to tweet was the Russell 2000 value of the last month is up 14% versus the MAG-7. That's basically like kind of flat when you look at the returns of those seven stocks. So, um, but my point in saying this is not that I'm crappy on Twitter, but you know. It's that you're, you're calling the bottom in value, right? Well, yeah, I will go. I always, I'm great at calling the bottom, go read my articles. <laughs> no, no, but uh, no, I just, it's, it's, you know, there's a point where, the momentum really starts to sniff out these turning points in the market. And, you know, the strength in small caps, particularly value, has been very, very strong over the last month, month and a half. And, and so who knows what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, if it continues, you know, momentum will start, momentum strategy will start to bring you into some of those stocks, which, by the way, are still kind of relatively cheap, um, you know, based on traditional value metrics. I think, I think this is a good time to in, invoke the, uh, invoke to limp biscuit again because i i think it's that mix and the the poetry of uh uh i wrote it down here somewhere because i'm very proud to say i've not committed any of this to memory uh chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water the third album from this group and i think like in the consensus strategy and, and in the mix to that point it's this idea of first off it was a bad idea that got carried on too long by the group it was a bad idea to start with, but it got carried on too long. But this idea of like the chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water is like, you got to have, you got to have the chocolate. You got to have the good part. <laughs> I'm going to leave starfish alone and just say it's part of a healthy process. And that's the, the verifying that it didn't die. That's like your quality factor in there. And then nobody wants the hot dog flavored water. That's always going to be value. It's part of the thing that gets you there, but it's just, it's just boring and gross. Um, but when you mix those three things together, when you're looking for momentum or what actually matters, when you have some type of like quality overlay in the mix to make sure you don't go to zero. And then when you have something that's like, this is verifiable quality in this, this is how the, I don't even want to say the sausage gets made. This is how the, the Limp Biscuit releases another album. Um, like it's important to see all these things and be aware of them. So even that, if that's in your Twitter stack of what's going to go out during the day and you phases in and out, sometimes you just have to take a shot. And just like the Mag 7 idea and whatever in that tweet that you were talking about, like another really important artifact of momentum is it tells us stuff that worked really well at one point in a time. And how often do we look at like former momentum darlings and do they become value stocks like years later? Look at everything from the tech bubble and then like what we were looking at just a few short years ago um, and certainly at the beginning of COVID and it's just like, oh, wait. Maybe, maybe this Amazon is onto something or Tesla or NVIDIA or whatever else has come out of the other side of this. So that's me basically saying like, this is so important. It's so important in context and it's so important to apply broadly, whether you're looking at it in your tweets 
and what's lined up on the deck, or you're looking at it in music and ideas that, you know, inevitably will blow up and die, but are just taking advantage of prevailing trends of the moment. I think we can say Olympus' momentum has come to an end. Uh, <laughs> ah, ah. But the Olympus Maybe get value factor is alive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very cheap now, right? It is cheap now. And I, all right, I'll derail us for one more second on this stuff. It is cheap now because, and to the degree that you guys are up on your hyperpop, uh, have you have either of you ever been subjected to 100 gex? Have you successfully avoided this? Probably. Yeah, I do not know what that is. Okay, 100 gex is probably one of my favorite pop groups of the last few years, and they fall into this hyperpop category. Absolutely fascinating. But their album that they put out this year is, it's almost like, it's like a momentum graveyard, but for music. So they're doing like Limp Bizkit quality, like weird metal in songs. They're doing like ska. They're doing all this stuff that is like weird things that like flare into the public conscience and then just flame out horribly to be long forgotten. Then they're mashing stuff together. So momentum becomes cheap over time and then that stuff can get recycled and we're in this weird wave of resurgence for that stuff right now under your noses somehow some way that 100 gex album is on a bunch of critics lists this year but all i'm saying is uh yeah momentum comes back as value and uh it's sneaky well uh i want to say well we'll get into these other last two points but to kind of i think piggyback on your point matt and I'm yeah, I have a point. Let's you did. Because, well, yeah, yeah. I, I think you did, at least. Okay. Um, and I'm more interested in your pers both your perspectives on this. I think one thing that happens in the market is I've always thought like investors get callous to both good and bad news. So, you know, if, if something really good happens, there's a narrative, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Investors pile in. If something bad happens, investors panic, think the worst, um, you know, and basically, you know, make moves to adjust to that. But then over time, you know, the behavior, they become used to whatever the narrative, good or bad is. And so I think that that is something that I, I personally think that that happens in the markets, that happens with investors. We become aware of something, our, you know, our emotions are heightened. And then over time, the information gets digested. Investors may or may make adjust, may or may not make adjustments to their portfolio. And then they kind of move on to the next thing. And so that may be one of the reasons why momentum tends to maybe work. But it's also like behaviorally in the markets, I think we just become more conditioned to good and bad news. And so whatever that news is becomes a little bit less important in the markets and then the markets move on to the next thing. Um, and that I'm trying to relate, re relate that Matt back to kind of the point that, that you were making. I don't know what you guys think of that. Well, if you think about like, uh, think about like CPI, like for the first part of my career, I never paid attention to CPI at all. It became like the most important thing of all time for a while, like CPI reports. And now we're getting conditioned to basically not care a lot less about these CPI things as, as it goes through. So yeah, I think that's right. I mean, something becomes like the thing that everybody is is focused on. I'm sure it could be companies. It can be concepts like that. It can be anything. And then suddenly, you know, we're, it's going to wane off again and we're going to be paying attention to something else. Yeah. I think this weighs into a lot of, uh, Jack or doing the breaking news podcast stuff too. It's, and this is why you have to see this stuff in layers. I think this is the most important part of this lesson is you look at the ideas that are becoming the most emergent 
And then you want to unpack kind of like the crowd psychology around these ideas and say like, why are these resonating? And then to connect it back, I think, Justin, this is the point you're making, which I think is, it's actually a brilliant insight. As you look at the full stack of like all these narratives that are on top of each other that are driving narrative and driving price forward, you can start to watch them like one at a time, probably like tick off as that thing is breaking. So as people lose the faith in various levels like of a story, and that's where we see it go down the other side. Um, it's really interesting to think about it that way. Uh, and like if I pick on CPI from Jack, from your example, like why did nobody care about CPI? Because there wasn't really inflation by the common terms of measurement that were used as the common terms of measurement for that period of time. So the number didn't move, the metrics and the measurement statistics didn't move, and the government, I mean, outside of the Fed, like who was really talking about inflation for all those years? But then all that starts to change, and it's not just... So does that mean like shadow stats were like the inflation value investors? Who is that inflation site that used to, or probably still tracks like, this is the true inflation. True true inflation, right? There you go. Yeah, maybe that's how much attention I'm sure their traffic is up like a thousand fold over whatever it was, you know, if it even existed before all this whole thing. Who knows? But but the point is, like, there's always somebody or if something has quality, it has this durability thing. It has the starfish factor. And in the starfish factor, something just won't go away. It just won't die. And that narrative exists. But it doesn't have inflation until we have several layers of story, price, some numbers, whatever else all stacked up. And that's, I guess that's the observation, Justin, that I'm really, I really like that framing of it because it's really useful because it reminds you, even when everybody is just talking about price, there's a whole ecosystem of stuff around that price that's worth understanding because that's probably how you start to spot the cracks and understand that nothing is permanent. Yeah. Like one of the things that I, and I know you guys have talked about this on Breaking News, so, you know, but like the you know, the wars that are going on, like one of the things when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, you had the idea that, you know, energy levels were going to be super high and, and they still are in some areas of the world with, you know, the UK and stuff like that. But like the price of oil has come, you know, way down. And yet, you know, Russia and Ukraine are still at war and that Russian oil is off the world supply. Now, I don't know. I can't tell you all the dynamics that go into that. My and, but my point is the, mar the market and investors have become callous to that to some extent. And so they've moved on beyond worrying about that in terms of the price of oil. That's all I'm saying, not necessarily the war per se, but even that to some extent with headlines and stuff. So I, I don't know. It's just, you know, that all kind of plays into investor behavior and emotions and stuff. So. And that's especially relevant in the financial planning conversations too. Like that's why talking about stuff like momentum and unpacking the statistics behind it matters because whether it's uh, your trajectory in a career, you got a bonus three years in a row or something. And now all of a sudden this year, the Christmas bonus isn't coming in. Extra Clark Griswold vibes, right? Like stuff can get ugly and we have to understand where those trends are and what those undermining things can break. Because that's part of the financial planning process is we as humans will extrapolate these trends into the future indefinitely, if not checked with the statistical realities of more things can happen than will happen. And to, to tie it back to like value investors too, like all that stuff you talked about, like this is one of the reasons momentum is great for like a value investor for any investor to use is like trying to figure all that stuff out, you know, good luck with that. Um, but momentum, all it cares about is what's the price action. 
like the price action, you know, the market is very efficient. There's a lot of smart people there. What's the price action that's being generated? I'm going to use that price action to make decisions about what I'm doing. And it avoids having to sit there and analyze those types of things, which, you know, at least for me, I'm like, I'm certainly not smart enough to figure out what's going on with those. So I like that. And I think it's good for like value investors and all types of investors to use momentum because of that. Um, I think it can be really beneficial. Every CMT is uh, rejoicing and jumping up and down, giving us thumbs up right now for this. Uh, and let's let's talk about it for a second too. I'm curious with you guys, like we, even if momentum is not a core part of like the top level investment process, when we start to look cross asset class, it's there. And it's there in the most simplest psychological form of if you look at an account statement and you're like, why is this? fund or stock or whatever I own that's like perpetually sucking. Like that's a, that's an awareness of momentum. Um, and, and it's there in the other, in both directions, I guess is my point. So like, how do you think about momentum kind of cross asset class in a portfolio? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, I mean, it works there as well. And, you know, we, we have some strategies we run that do that, um, that, that effectively try to, you know, use momentum. You've used both parts of momentum. So use time series momentum to determine like, should I even be invested at all? And then use cross-sectional momentum to say, you know, which asset classes have the most momentum. And, you know, that's been proven out as well. I mean, it, it works well there too. So it can certainly be used, you know, as an asset allocation strategy as well. And it's subject to all the stuff Justin said before. Obviously, you know, there's going to be the crashes. There's going to be the turning points where it doesn't work. But over time, yeah, I mean, it works there as well. Yeah, those strategies are you know, trying to get you in the areas of the market that are working. But then they also have this ability to kind of move out of risk assets when sort of the trend breaks down technically in the majority of them. So the idea is that if, you know, the most of them, the majority are exhibiting negative momentum or in a downtrend, you know, there's something wrong in the overall market. And so you want to be moving to more of a risk off um, type of posture. But I know it's not the point, but just say, say why it's not the ultimate silver bullet for a second. One of you just point this out again, like especially cross asset class. Why does this just always moving to the thing that's working. Why again, does that not solve all the world's problems and isn't the only thing you should ever do forever and always? Well, first of all, you have to, you have to worry about what time frame it's working over. So, you know, if, if it's working over 14 years or something like it, eventually, you know, when you get periods beyond a year, momentum starts to break down. So you can't just, you know, you do have to keep moving to what's working. You can't just say, you know, just, I, I'm going to use, you know, you have to be cognizant of the periods over which it works. But also to Justin's point, like it's, I mean, it's subject to, to problems and it doesn't, it doesn't always work. There's years where there's multi, you know, three-year periods where it doesn't work. You know, so like anything in investing, like if it works well over the long term, you're probably going to have periods where it doesn't work. You're going to be challenged. You know, you're going to have to believe in it. All, all that stuff is true of momentum, no matter how you use it, um, just like it's true of anything else like value. Be because we use a, and it's a, it's a, it's one of the ways you can express momentum in terms of a timing strategy. You know, you can, you can have like a, a timing system that tries to move in and out of stocks. And we've been running one for a number of years. And I, you know, know the pluses and minuses of it. One of the big minuses that can happen is, and I'm just talking about on equities now. So if you're overlaying something like moving in, in and out of the market using some type of timing overlay that, you know, is utilizing momentum or trend following, a big downside of it is, and if you think about since the financial crisis, including the 2020 COVID crash, basically every 20% decline in the S&P has been um, 
you know, a turning point. Those 20% declines really haven't turned into full-fledged 35, 45% real bad bear markets. The COVID crash, the S&P was down 30%, but that basically came in like a waterfall shed moment within, you know, 30 to 45 days. So the point is, is when you're utilizing momentum on top of a investment strategy that is moving in and out of something, whether it's equities or something like that, something else, there's always this susceptibility of getting whipsawed. And, you know, over time, that can significantly detract from returns versus buy and hold when it, it works, when that 20% decline actually turns into something like a 50% decline, like you've had in the financial crisis. Okay. That comes around maybe once every 10 or 20 years based on the historical data. Um, so I, I think when you're utilizing momentum in that way, you know, there's certainly a, a big, there can be a big drag on returns by that whipsawing effect. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely true. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, just any, no matter how you use momentum, there, there's always going to be these downsides and, you know, it, but it, that's true of anything, you know, it's, it's not something that's like a knock against momentum because it's, it's true of pretty much anything. I think we've um, hit on maybe some of these, but let's just, we had a few other points uh, as to ways that, you know, moment, momentum might be utilized. And we, we kind of talked about some extent entry and exit points. I don't know, Jack, do you have anything else that you want to add to that? Yeah, well, that, that gets at Matt's point about momentum can be used on both sides. So it's not just, you know, to look for positive momentum, but you also can look for the lack of momentum or really, really bad momentum. And, and that's a way, like, if, if you look at DFA um, and the way they run their value strategies, you know, they're not a huge believer in momentum, but they, they do use it in that way. Like, they're not a believer in building momentum portfolios, you know, using momentum as the primary factor, but they do use it to say, all right, if I've got a bunch of cheap stocks that I could buy and they've got pretty similar value profiles, but like some of them are just in free fall, and some of them aren't, you know, maybe if I don't buy the ones that are in free fall, that's a better portfolio. Or if on the other side, if like my value stocks, you know, are starting to get more expensive and I got to figure out what to sell, well, maybe the one that continues to have momentum, let's let that one run a little bit. Let's maybe let it go a little bit past what we think our value, our breaking point, our value criteria would be. Let's continue to hold it. So that whole idea of entry and exit is a really good way for value investors to use momentum where you're not, your primary criteria is still value but around the edges, you're making your portfolio better. I want to set this, the last point up with something I remember. I think it was Ben Inker from GMO said when we asked him, I believe it was the, what question would you teach your average investor? But he was always like, ask yourself why someone would be willing to buy or sell you the stock that you're trading. Because if you're buying the stock, that means someone's willing to sell it to you. Or if you're selling a stock, that means someone's willing to buy it for you. So there's always someone on the other side of that trade. And the chances are they could be a lot smarter than, than you know, any one of us are or in terms of making that decision. But I think with momentum, the, the thing that investors might want to think about, and I think it's particularly for value investors, if you have something you're looking at that has high momentum, uh, you know, you can, and maybe it's not as cheap as you like. It's like, what am I, what am I missing here? What am I missing in the story, either in the numbers, in the outlook that I'm not seeing that the market's seeing? And it go, the same is true for the other side of it. If you have something with very low momentum and you're like, wow, this stock has a PE of four and a price to book of 0.3 and, you know, a relative strength of five. Well, yeah, that's cheap. But what am I, what am I missing here that, uh, you know, what maybe there is some huge lawsuit or problems or liability that, you know, investors know about. And we know that investors do t have a tendency to overreact to that stuff. But a lot of that stuff can stay cheap for a very long time. So I just think like 
looking at momentum and asking yourself, what am I missing here is important for all investors. Yeah, this is like a whole other episode we could do. But this idea of avoiding value traps is something that value investors like always want to do. And it can't be done. I mean, you know, if you're buying a bunch of cheap stocks, you're going to have some value traps in your portfolio. And, you know, when we do, we, we've done a different episode on our, uh, our value trap system. But the idea for us, like, is when we're trying to avoid value traps, we say, all right, we're relying on past fundamentals to buy value stocks. Typically, you know, we're typically relying on, you know, whatever ratio it is. It's something that was reported in the past. Well, what could what could have happened where those numbers are not reliable? And so we, we have a bunch of fundamental things we do to say, all right, like if this is true, then those numbers might not be that reliable. But the kind of the catch all we use at the end is this idea of momentum, because to your point, if we think we've got all these great numbers and everything's perfect and the relative strength is one, like 99 percent of other stocks are outperforming the stock, like something has gone wrong here and, and we're missing something. And so in. If we can take, if we can do that, like have a system which just filters those types of stocks out and invest in companies that probably have not that much higher valuations that are still cheap, you know, that makes our system better. You know, because typically in those stocks that have, say, three, four, five, 10 relative strength, whatever it is, typically in those stocks are some major, major problems and some stocks that may not make it, some stocks that are going to go bankrupt. And so by, by avoiding those, that, that's another way value investors can use momentum is to use this idea of negative screening to say, all right, I've got my value stocks, but I'm just going to take the absolute worst momentum stuff and I'm just going to chop that off because I know there's probably some major issues there and that might, you know, over time slightly enhance my returns. I love the idea of this and how it ties back to you can't talk about markets without talking about marketing. Because now in those stacks, the way you're explaining it right there, both of you, is like the more extreme the story in either direction the more extreme the sales pitch needs to be to buy or sell. Because I could have the thing that's like the worst momentum ever in the complete basement. And I have the holder honors and whether or not they're going to sell if ever. But then also the pitch on no one likes this thing. No one knew will touch it because it just keeps going down. What value pitch do I need to give you to make you just believe this thing isn't going to zero? And the flip side, you have the most extreme positive momentum and having to find somebody who's like, oh no, this thing is only going up. And whether that's Bitcoin or real estate or tech stocks or oil stocks, you know, six months ago when they were doing good, whatever it is, is you can't talk about markets without talking about marketing. And the more extreme the momentum, the more extreme the sales pitch you need to get that transaction done. That, that's a really, really powerful point. So um, we're one or two podcasts away from the end of the year. If people don't uh, happen to catch the last one, we wish everyone that's watching a happy and healthy and safe holiday season. But try to tune in next week because that will be our uh, 2024 predictions. And we're, we're all coming to the table with our horrible forecasting abilities, but we're going to give it a shot anyways and uh, hopefully you know, help people learn along the way with us. So we appreciate everyone for watching and we'll see you guys next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. 
We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.